hello. Welcome, everyone, to episode four of the Mind Body Mastery podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Michaels, and it's really cool that you're here again. It's uh, it's an honor to be speaking in your ears today. Um, so today's episode, we're going to be talking about the shadow side. So that part of ourselves that we'd rather not look at, that's kind of the hallmark of healing from chronic pain, TMS, whatever you want to call it. Um, and so we're going to kind of go through what is the shadow and how can we dig into it um, in order to heal. So basically, Sarno kind of talks about the shadow a lot, but instead he calls it the unconscious mind. You can kind of use the two interchangeably. And so I'll be talking about the shadow, but you could also substitute the word unconscious brain, unconscious mind. And so basically we develop a shadow because we are born into civilization. As humans, we are all kind of raised in a society where there are certain concepts and certain behaviors that are considered to be acceptable. And then there are other behaviors that are considered to be unacceptable. And in order to get along in society, our parents or caretakers raise us to kind of hide the parts of ourselves that don't fit in. And so depending on what kind of a family you were raised in, you have a certain degree of personality and emotional characteristics that you really just learned from very early on weren't acceptable. And because you depended on your family or your caretaker for your very survival, you learned how to hide away those parts of you that they didn't approve of. And so a lot of times these aspects are negative, you know, so anger, temper tantrums, um, shame and guilt and tears and sadness, like all of these things that it just took one person, one adult in your life to say like, oh, don't do that. Don't cry. Big, big boys don't cry, you know, or something like that. So these aspects of ourselves become hidden away. They become subterranean, unconscious, and we really disown them. And so the healing of chronic pain or disease really goes hand in hand with reowning our own shadow, as odd as it sounds. That's kind of the whole concept of what um, Sarno talked about was just getting in touch with the darker parts of ourselves that we, we don't want to look at. And so in one of Sarno's books entitled The Divided Mind, that title is kind of directly talking to that split nature of our brains. And so we have the parts of ourselves that we like and that we know about, um, you know, if we're people pleasers or just always being a good person or kind or generous, you know, those parts of ourselves we are well aware of. And um, often when we see people that aren't those things, so people that are selfish or people that are angry, we tend to judge them. And so a lot of times when we um, repress or disown these parts of ourselves that we can find them in others. So um, there's really not a single one of us that is immune to this shadow side. And we really go to great lengths and they're always unconscious. So don't, 
be sad that you don't know about this. It's like an unconscious process, which means you're not aware of it consciously. That's why it's the shadow. And so we go to great lengths to protect our self-image from anything unflattering, anything unsavory, anything that we don't like about others. And so really the best way of observing our own shadow is by paying very close attention to how we judge others. Exploring this side of ourselves isn't easy, but I believe it is absolutely essential to becoming fully authentic and to becoming fully pain-free. Exploring the side of ourselves fearlessly also sends a signal to our brain that these darker feelings or emotions are not so dangerous. In doing so, we release the need for our brains to produce a physical distraction in the form of pain or disease. And so the shadow or our unconscious is that aspect of our personality that consists primarily of like primitive negative human emotion, like rage, envy, greed, selfishness, desire, or power hungriness. There is also, however, a part of our shadows that are positive that get buried into the, into the unconscious subterranean parts of us. Um, and we'll talk about that in another episode, but just know that it's not all negative in the shadow. It's, it's just any part that we have decided not to look at. And that can be positive aspects too. And so anything that we deny within ourselves, anything that we see as uncivilized or unacceptable gets sent automatically to the subterranean depths of our unconscious or shadow. And just like you can't have a one-sided mountain or a wave crest without its trough, so too within our psyches remains this darker region. And the stronger we push against its existence within ourselves, the stronger our judgments of others become. And so if we still choose to only see the darkness in others and never within ourselves, we are actually then working very hard to repress. Now, this is where our brains think we're in actual danger. This is what sets up that situation of prolonged fight, flight, freeze, which then leads to increased adrenaline and cortisol, and that overtaxes our bodies. It is then that we develop pain, IBS, migraines, and the like. It's kind of like having the gas pedal and the brakes engaged at the same time all the time. And so our engine can only handle so much of that before mechanical trouble arises. And often the shadow is something that's born within us, usually in very early childhood. We don't know it consciously, but as we grow up, our parents teach us the difference between quote unquote good behavior and quote unquote bad behavior. And so we earn, we learn very early on that in order to receive love, affection, or Santa's presence or kindness, that we must only be good. And so if we get angry and have a temper tantrum, perhaps we get punished and sent to our rooms without dinner, maybe. 
We then become programmed to hide our anger as a means of receiving approval from mom and dad, as well as dinner. Or maybe we cried a lot as kids and other kids at school made fun of us. Uh, speaking from personal experience. <laughs> and so that response from others around us taught us that in order to have friends, in order to be liked by our peers, that nobody likes a sad, weak friend. And so then we put all of these unwanted parts of ourselves into a bag and we drag it around with us in perpetuity. Remaining unconscious of this part of us can impact every area of our lives, not just pain, but relationships, leadership abilities, um, and then of course, our physical bodies. So when we repress, it is very common to project onto others. For example, if we get irritated with our partner for being insensitive, then it is highly likely that that's because we haven't owned our own insensitivities. So one way to go about unearthing the shadow is to notice, just kind of take a step back every time we get frustrated with another human being and begin to contemplate, stop and ask ourselves, what about this person's behavior could I also find examples of within myself? A really great way to tap into this is through the work of Byron Katie. I love Byron Katie. I think she's so wise. And a lot of times people get upset with her work because it um, assumes that there is some sort of blame. But she says that in the beginning of her books, that if you perceive that, that's a misunderstanding of her work. Um, one of the books that I really like listening to on audio is called Loving What Is. And um, that was kind of the missing link for me in my TMS healing. It was a very, it went hand in hand with the TMS research that I was doing. Um, first, she has you fill out this worksheet that she calls the judge your neighbor worksheet. You can find this on thework.com. Um, but I also still really recommend you listen to loving what is. Um, so you fill out this judge your neighbor worksheet where you don't censor yourself. You just kind of write from, from, what you're feeling about this person. Just be nasty. Don't be positive. Kind of get it all out. And then she has you do the work on this person. And so you ask yourself, with every judgment you wrote about them, is it true? Is it true that this person is always a jerk? And you find out very quickly that your truth isn't the ultimate truth, you know? So maybe, maybe you say yes to, to one piece of truth about that person. But, um, a lot of times you'll find that your judgments of them aren't necessarily true. And then she has you kind of ask yourself, you know, how do I feel when I judge this person in this way? And a lot of times, or when you believe the thought about that person, and a lot of times you'll notice that, well, I feel like crap. I feel, I feel mad. I feel frustrated. I feel annoyed. And then she asks, who would you be without that thought? And then you get to kind of put on the coat of awareness. You kind of try it on. How would it feel to not believe this about that person? And you notice you feel free. 
you feel you feel at ease. You feel like a weight has been lifted when you don't believe this about that person. And then, um, and then she has you do the turnarounds where it's like you kind of ask yourself, like, have I ever been this person just in a different situation? Have I ever been a jerk to someone else? And of course you can find examples of that within yourself. And so basically her work is like unearthing the shadow within yourself. And first to do that, you judge your neighbor. And so it's a really great way to, to kind of get in touch with the, the darker parts of you. And so I actually had a, a look at my own shadow last night. We had a friend come over to visit um, for a little bit. I was kind of in the process of cooking dinner at the time. He came over and we got a new puppy like two months ago. And this puppy is very loving. He's a big boy. He's like almost 60 pounds now. And he loves to just kind of gently crawl up on your lap and lick your face. And it's so sweet. He just wants to love you. And I find it adorable. And this friend walks in the door and he's immediately donning the coat of Cesar Milan and he's alpha-ing my dog. <laughs> he's hissing at him and and trying to discipline him and making him do things without rewarding him. And I am immediately pissed. <laughs> I like am mad at my friend for trying to over alpha my dog. And anytime he asks him to do a trick or, tr you know, whatever, um, he is not rewarding his behavior. And I am like, in inside of my heart, I'm furious because it's like, no, you stop being a jerk to my dog. <laughs> and, uh, and so then I was kind of in this tug of war in my own mind, trying to you know, at the same time, notice what was going on in my heart. Like, have I ever been trying to over alpha a situation in, in my life? And I could think of an example immediately of over the weekend when I was trying to, um, you know, tell a friend how to look at a situation and I was dominating the conversation and, and I could tell right away that this was a, an aspect of myself, um, that I didn't want to own. And so, um, if you're listening to this podcast friend that was over last night, uh, I apologize for, um, telling you not to alpha my dog. So, so that was just a small little, little example of my own shadow. And I, I'm always learning, you know, it's like the shadow never really goes away. I find examples of myself in others all the time. So anytime I'm annoyed with someone, I try to take a step back and say like, how have I been this person before? And then I can always find it. And then I reconcile that part of myself and realize that they're just teaching me more about me. And so when we do shadow work, we often find that our relationships improve, we can feel clearer in our perceptions of others, we can release pain and increase our energy, we can increase immune function because we're not constantly pulling ourselves in two different directions. We come into a greater place of wholeness and maturity, and, and we can also unlock some creative potential. And so when trying to explore your shadow, it's really important to go into it with a lot of self-compassion. 
it's good to remember that you're not alone. We all have lower emotions and inner tantrums. It makes it so much harder to do this work when we are hard on ourselves. So accept your own humanness. As Jung used to say, we are all in this soup together. So become courageous, become honest. And again, I find it really helpful to journal. You can begin journaling by talking about others and then try to find examples in your own life where you've acted the same way. Try to find any negative or dark thoughts. What am I angry about? What am I jealous about? What am I feeling greedy about? Um, What am I shameful about? What have I been tyrannical about? And so if you find that you're always trying to say, people please, can you find a part of yourself that resents that? Can you find a part of yourself that really doesn't want to people please? And if you're, say, a parent, can you find a part of yourself that hates the responsibility of it all? If you're a caretaker for someone who can't help themselves, can you be honest with the idea that this is something that you hate, this is a burden, and kind of explore those emotions and write about it and get it all out because when you kind of hold on to that inside, but then you're like, oh no, I shouldn't feel this way, This is it's not right to resent someone I love, then those feelings and resentments become uh, part of that shadow and it's normal and natural to have those resentments and feelings. And having those resentments doesn't have any impact on us being a good person or not. So also pay attention to your defensiveness when it arises. Defense mechanisms are just our shadow wanting to remain subterranean. This doesn't mean that others being rude to us isn't difficult to deal with in the moment, but if we had owned the rude parts of ourselves first, it is highly likely that their rudeness wouldn't phase us as much. As Jung used to say, everything that irritates us about others can lead to an understanding about ourselves. And so another method to discovering our shadow is to write a list of all of our best qualities. And so just kind of put down everything that we love about ourselves in a list format. And then to the right of every one of those qualities, try to find the opposite and try to identify that opposite within ourselves. For example, if you see yourself as a disciplined person, a go-getter, Try to get in touch with a part of you that truly wants to be a lazy bum. See it and accept it and know that it's okay to be lazy too. Allow yourself maybe a day of pizza and soda and Netflix and call in sick and be as lazy as you've ever been. And as you're doing it, keep that self-compassion in the forefront. This is you giving yourself therapy by allowing yourself to be someone you don't think you are. (laughs) So there's also a shadow process by this uh, gentleman named Ken Wilbur. Um, He's got a practice called the Integral Life Practice, and it goes like this. Step one, choose 
um, whom you want to work with. So this could be a partner or a spouse or a boss or a relative. And maybe this person irritated you or disturbed you or annoys you. Um, and so picking someone with whom you have a strong emotional charge, someone that you feel like you have unfinished business with. And step two is to then imagine this person, describe the qualities that most infuriate you using third-person language. So he, she, they. And it really helps to kind of write this all down in a journal. So this is essentially the judge your neighbor worksheet. Step three is to have a dialogue with them in your imagination. So using you, ask them questions like, why are you doing this to me? What do you want from me? What are you trying to teach me? And imagine their response and write them down too. Step four is to kind of embody this person. Embody the traits that you described in first-person language. So say stuff like, I am angry. I am a jealous person. I micromanage, et cetera, et cetera. And kind of notice these qualities within yourself. Notice that if you look deep enough, you can find that you've reflected their behavior back to them at some point. And so on a final note, I really highly encourage you to look into the work of Alan Watts. There are just dozens and dozens of YouTube videos um, that uh, Alan Watts is a part of. And um, he had, uh, when he was alive, he was a philosopher who kind of just had talks and people would come to his talks and just hear him talk. And so there are just hundreds and hundreds of archives of uh, Alan Watts musings. And so he talked a lot about young and the shadow. And, and so I'm going to leave you with a little um, 14 minute clip about uh, the shadow as, as discussed by Alan Watts. And so I'll say goodbye now. So thank you guys for tuning in to the fourth episode of the Mind Body Mastery Podcast. I'm Caitlin Michaels, and we'll see you next time. Everybody should do in their lifetime sometime two things. One is to consider death, to observe skulls and skeletons, and to wonder what it will be like to go to sleep and never wake up. Never. That uh, is the most, is a very gloomy uh, thing for contemplation, but it's like manure. Just as manure fertilizes the plants and so on, so the contemplation of death and the acceptance of death is very highly generative of creative life. You get wonderful things out of that. And the other thing to contemplate is to follow the possibility of the idea that you are totally selfish. That you don't have a good thing to be said for you at all. You are a complete, utter rascal. <laughs> now, the, the Christians have avoided this. Because although they say in their Episcopalian form of confession that we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep and we have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts, too much, you know, uh, we have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we 
ought to have done and we have done those things which we ought not to have done and there is no health in us but <laughs> it ought to be different and we're going to do our best to amend with the help of God's grace and that is a real con act because uh, if you equate health with genuine love and perfect unselfishness, then in that sense there is no health in us when we look at ourselves from this point of view. Now, when you go deeply into the nature of selfishness, what do you discover? You say, I love myself, I seek my own advantage. Now, what is the self that I love? What do I want? And that becomes an increasingly ever-deepening puzzle. Now, I've often referred to this when you say to somebody else, I love you. It's always rather disconcerting to the person to whom you say that. If you imply that you love them with a pure, disinterested and holy love, they automatically suspect it as being a little bit phony. But if you say, I love you so much I could eat you, that's an expression, it's a way of saying to a person, you attract me so much that I can't help it. I'm absolutely bowled over by you, I'm gone. And people like that. Then they feel they're really being loved, that it's absolutely genuine. But now, I love you so much I could eat you. Now, what the devil do I want? I certainly don't want to eat the girl in the sense of literally devouring her, because then she'd disappear. <laughs> ah, but I love myself. Now, what is me? How do, in what way do I know me? When it suddenly occurs to me that I know me only in terms of you. See, when I think of anything that I know and that I like, then it's always something that can be viewed as other than me. I can never get to look at me, real me. It's always behind. It's always hidden. And I really don't know it well enough to know whether I love it or not. Maybe I don't. Maybe it's an appalling man. And that the main task of the psychotherapist is to do what he called to integrate the evil to, as it were, put the devil in us in its proper function. Because, you see, it's always the devil, the unacknowledged one, the outcast, the scapegoat, the bastard, the bad guy, you see, the black sheep of the family. It's always from that point, that, which we could call the fly in the ointment, you see, that generation comes. In other words, uh, in the same way as in the drama, uh, to have the play, it's necessary to introduce a villain. It's necessary to introduce a certain element of trouble. So, in the whole scheme of life, there has to be the shadow. Because without the shadow, there can't be the substance. So this is why there is a very strange association between 
crime and all naughty things and holiness. You see, holiness is way beyond being good. Good people aren't necessarily holy people. A holy person is one who is whole, who has, as it were, reconciled his opposites. And so there's always something slightly scary about holy people. And other people react to them in very strange ways. They can't make up their minds whether they're saints or devils. And so holy people have throughout history always created a great deal of trouble along with their creative results. Take Jesus, for example. Trouble that Jesus created is absolutely incalculable. <laughs> Think of the Crusades, the Inquisition, the heaven only knows what's gone on in the name of Jesus. Very remarkable. Freud's a big troublemaker. Jung had a tremendous humor. And he knew that nobody can be completely honest. That you will try and you'll have a great deal of success in uh, exploring your motivations and your dark, unconscious depths. But there will be a certain point at which you will say, well, I've had enough of that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Do you see how, in a strange way, there's a certain sanity in that? When a person indulges in a certain kind of duplicity, of deception, there is something, you all laughed when I said that, there's something humorous about it. And this humor is a very funny thing. Basically, humor is an attitude of laughter about oneself. There is malicious humor, or which is laughing at other people. But real deep humor is laughter at oneself. Now, why fundamentally do you laugh about yourself? What makes you laugh about yourself? Isn't it because you know that there is a big difference between what goes on the outside and what goes on the inside? <laughs> that if I hint, you see, that your inside is the opposite of your outside, it makes people laugh. If I don't do it unkindly. If I get up in the attitude of a preacher and say, uh, you're a bunch of miserable sinners and you ought to be different, nobody laughs. <laughs> but if I say, well, after all, boys will be boys and girls will be girls, and we, we all know, then, then, then people laugh. Now, you see, what's, what's happening when we do that? Now, I passed you around a lot of embroidery to look at before we started. And I'm perfectly sure that you got the point that there's a big difference between the front and the back. In some forms of embroidery, the back is very different from the front because people take shortcuts. In the front, everything is orderly and it is supposed to be kind of messy on the back side. See, which side will you wear? You've got to be sure you get the front in the front, have the back in the back. The back has all the little tricks in it, all the shortcuts, all the lowdown that people don't acknowledge, see? And it's exactly the same with the way we live. You know, like sweeping the dust under the carpet in a hurry just before the guests come. I mean, we do ever so many things like that. And if you don't do it, if you don't think you do it, 
and you think, well, really, I, my embroidery is the same on both sides, see? Well, you're deceiving yourself, because what you're doing is you're taking the shortcuts in another dimension, which you're keeping out of consciousness. Everybody takes the shortcuts. Everybody plays tricks. Everybody has in himself an element of duplicity, of deception. Because you see, from this point of view that I'm discussing, where the web is the trap, to be is to deceive. Think of camouflage. The chameleon who changes its color. Think of the butterfly pretending it has eyes. Think of the flower saying to the bee, like my honey? <laughs> bee says, wow. <laughs> but then that means that the bee has to be, and it has to go on living, and all the trouble it takes to go around collecting honey and raising other bees and organizing itself and doing that dance which tells the other bees where there's more honey. There's all that stuff to do. But the flower was deceptive. Now, in the same way, I've often said, life is, is a drama, and a drama is a deception. It's a big act. When you peel an onion, and you don't really understand the nature of an onion, you might look for the pit in the center, like any ordinary fruit has. But the onion doesn't have a center. It's all skins. And so when you get right down, there's nothing but a bunch of skins. You say, well, that was a kind of disappointing... <laughs> but of course you have to understand that the skins were the part that you eat well in rather the same way you see you find when you explore yourself uh, and your motivations and you go through and through and you try to find out that thing which is really genuine that's why in Zen discipline they give you koans which require a perfectly genuine act an act of total and absolute sincerity and people knock themselves out trying to do this thing, but they always know that the master's going to catch them. Because he reads their thought. You know that story of um, von Kleist, about the man who had a fight with a bear, and the bear could read his thoughts, so that the only way of hitting the bear was to do so not on purpose. Because the bear would know in advance. So it's the same in working with a Zen master. You have to do the genuine act not on purpose. But since you're put in a situation where it's rather formal and you're supposed to do it on purpose, you're stuck, you see. So you explore the onion and you go in and in and in and then you find, well, uh, it's all a deception. Now then the question arises, who's deceiving who? Who's fooling who? I'm fooling me? What is fooling? Fooling is playing like you're there when you're not. You know, getting somebody else to answer your name in the roll call. <laughs> so, we're all, you see, this is the metaphysical basis of it. This is what the Hindus mean by maya, the world illusion. The world is playing it's there when it isn't. 
And it's a trap. And it sucks you in. And you can't go out of it. And it's a thorough big trap, too. But always, when you get an idea like this, or a feeling like this, follow it to its extreme. Don't back out from it. If you find you're selfish, go to the extreme of what selfishness means. Confusion largely results from not following feelings or ideas to their depth. You know, people think they want to be immortal. They'd like to live forever. Do you really want to do that? Think about it. Really go into it, what it would be like. People say they want this, that, and the other. They want this kind of car, they want this kind of dress, or so on, and um, this much money, and so on. It's always a good idea to think it right through. What it would involve to be in that situation, to have those desires fulfilled. Also, when you form a relationship to another person, think it through, too. You see? How inconvenient could they be? <laughs> However attractive. And uh, always turn the em embroidery round and look at the underside, but don't get caught doing it. <laughs> see, that's something one does on the side, in secret. Because otherwise you play the game that everything is as it's supposed to be on the front. But that makes you humorous. And that makes you human. <laughs>